you know Christians can be different. And if you're here and you are a Christian, you especially know Christians can be different. Christians, we're different. We're different with the stuff we say, the subculture we create. We're different. Even in the pickup lines, we apparently abuse. We've got Jesus freaks. We've got Holy Spirit hoppers. We've got Heavenly Father fanatics. I mean, gee, Christians, they can be so different. But not all of that's bad. Some of that is really really good. And what we find in our passage this morning is that Christians are called to be the right kind of different. I mean, our world needs the right kind of different. We need the right kind of different because so much of normal life, quite frankly, is boring. It's broken. There's just a lot of destructive lifestyles and destruction that we see around us. You know, when we think about different, that word can be even hard to describe ourselves. If you don't like it, you can think of the word of unusual or set apart. It's the same way we would define holy, which is all over Scripture. As Christians, we're supposed to be the kind of people who can't sit still in normal, right? We can't sit still so much so that even if it costs us our comfort, even if it costs us our lives, we're called to a different, a right kind of difference. There are plenty of examples of the wrong kind of different, per se, the video you just watched or any other wrong kinds of different that are rolling through your mind right now. But it does beg the question for each and every one of us, what does the right kind of different look like? When we come to our passage, Peter's writing his first letter to a slew of churches throughout the Roman Empire. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see that the right kind of different and a wrong kind of world raises questions, answers openly, loves clearly, and lives focused. Okay, so raises questions, answers openly, loves clearly, and lives focused. Think about it. Whenever you see something highly unusual or different, what do you do? If it's something that's really weird, like some guy yelling at himself in a back alley, you usually book it, looking over your corner to make sure he's not following you. But if it's the right kind of different, if it's the right kind of different, it stirs questions in your mind. If you build up enough courage, it even stirs conversations with those who display this right kind of different. And that's what our lives are supposed to be. Our lives are supposed to first, in the right kind of different, raise questions. So what in our lives makes this right kind of different really pop? Be earth-shattering, be eye-catching, be heartwarming, and even thought-provoking. Well, the catalyst for questions show, is shown in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. If you're using one of the community Bibles, it's on page 657. And follow along here, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 to begin with. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as, always, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What's that catalyst for questions? Now and always, one of the greatest catalysts for questions is when you're going through pain and you're going through suffering and you still display a sense of hopefulness and goodness. 
People who don't have that same hopefulness will look at your response. They'll assess how you've responded to your situation and notice the difference and begin with a sense of intrigue on where your tenacious life comes from. The little word good that we find here in verse 13, it actually shows up 13 times in these three middle chapters of this little tiny letter. 13 times. So we have to take notice on what is going on. Here are a couple examples of where else this word good is used. 1 Peter 2, verses 14 and 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 2, 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Good means here what it means in most instances. It means meeting a high standard of worth. As Christians, we're called to embrace a life that has higher standards than our culture. A life of consistent virtue that's displayed from the pages of Scripture and made possible by the gospel. If we are zealous, is the word Peter uses here, or in other words, we're passionate about pursuing this sort of good life, well, in the words of Peter, who is there to harm you? The way you could say this is the right kind of different looks like you being some of the best members of your community, some of the best citizens of your country, some of the best employees or employers at your vocation. It involves being some of the most effective and faithful volunteers in the organizations that God has placed you in. If we're these kinds of people, then there's no just reason for anyone to mistreat you. But that doesn't mean it still won't happen, right? Scripture talks about it all over the pages. Um, we find in uh, 1 Peter that Peter talks about this, and we see in our own experience confirming and affirming that without, and even in this right situation, uh, I, first, I just need to say something real quick. I see some friends of mine, and I totally got distracted. They're in from Washington, so come on in. Have a seat. Uh, the Shanes, Elizabeth actually led worship for us for a while here, and Nathan did video, and they're back from uh, up in Washington, the Northwest, just for a little bit. So welcome. I was, I, you saw I was distracted, so I had to say something and say hi, and I'm just so thankful for them. So welcome. Anyway, so if you go through your life, and you're living this right kind of different, okay, you're living this right kind of different. There is no just reason for anyone to mistreat you. But we know, as we just said, that there is still going to be times where you're going to be mistreated. Scripture talks about this. Peter talks about this. Our own experience affirms this. Following Jesus and the right kind of different brings difficulties. Jesus, he said a lot of different things in his sermons. Um, in his Sermon on the Mount... He actually goes as far to say something like, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing the right things, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this was such a different and revolutionary idea that it just stuck in Peter's mind. He couldn't get it out. It's echoed here, right here in our passage. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And we have to pause here with this phrase, even if you should suffer. 
because it reveals a lot about the situation of the original readers and how Rome was responding to the church at this exact moment of Peter writing this letter. When, when we see this, many times we want to dismiss Peter's statement and say, well, I'm not going through intense persecution, Peter. What does this have to do with me? I'm not going through great pain right now for the cause of Christ. What does this have to do with me? Well, if you notice the tense of this verb, even if you should suffer, you should suffer, it indicates that those suffering, this suffering is a real possibility. It's generally speaking, not a present one. This particular church's experience isn't too far from our own. The best we can tell is that this early church has yet to face any sort of intense suffering whatsoever. It's not that their lives are easy here in 1 Peter, but they haven't experienced that intense form of pressure and persecution yet. And Peter's pointing that the time is coming, and when it does, be ready. I mean, this is the story of the city we live in, isn't it? Here in Kansas City. And the same guidance that Peter gives this early church, he's giving to us sitting in this very room this morning in the 21st century. We may not be undergoing great persecution. Your civil liberties may not be encumbered for following Jesus. You may not have the threat of imprisonment now, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook as followers of Jesus. You see, people are made in the image of God. And as people being made in the image of God, therefore everyone gets part of the story right. That's why we can even have commonalities with the wider culture and how we impact the world. For example, our wider culture currently is very passionate about seeking justice for the oppressed in our city. We find that all over the pages of scripture. This is a good thing. We share commonalities with our wider culture in that issue. But Peter clearly says that our understanding of the flourishing life, of the good life, sometimes is going to contradict what our wider culture is telling us is the good life. For example, our wider cultural public opinion and the shift of sexual ethics. What we find in Scripture, we cannot affirm, is what the wider public opinion or the wider embrace of abortion. As we stand up, for the voices of the most vulnerable in our society, the unborn children, this is where Christians will look very different and how we respond to those issues and also how we stand and communicate God's word in those very issues. In fact, Peter, later on in his later letter in chapter 4, he says there's going to be times that Christians are slandered against. So get ready. Because of our rejection of certain societal norms, we're called to be the right kind of different, not accommodation to everything that our public opinion and our society affirms. Our ultimate authority is God's word, not what even feels good all the time. But even still, in all of this, Peter, he echoes the words of Jesus, saying that this sort of outcome is a blessing. Really, Peter? When we're slandered against, when we're persecuted, this is a blessing? And just so we're all clear, blessing means... God is showing you favor. Oh, great. Somebody just slandered me or maligned me or persecuted me. This is a gift from God. Hooray. Great news. I don't think any of you are expecting that for Christmas, right? Well, the answer on how this can actually be a gift comes from Jesus. When he's talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, and it's up on the screen, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they, the broader culture of the time, have called the master, who is Jesus, of the house Beelzebub, which is the devil, how much more will they malign, slander those of his household? How is this a blessing? How is this a gift? Because it's a sign that you're a part of his household. Right there we see when slander and persecution occurs for the sake of Christ in the midst of suffering for doing good and doing right, it's a sign that you're a part of his household. That's a gift of this confirmation. And if you continue to follow Jesus and how you respond by not attacking in return, it raises questions. Those who are looking for hope, they see the right kind of different in you. Is your life today the right kind of different that raises questions? Is anyone asking you questions at all, actually? The main idea is, do you stand out as different? They have this cognitive dissonance, this moment where they need to ask questions to make sense of how you're living. Now, if we ever hope to raise questions, we have to first, and I know this is going to sound elementary, but we have to say it, We have to first be around people. (laughs) And caveat here, a clear distinction, people who don't share our hope. People who don't share our hope. That means we can't live in this cloistered separationist ideal where we never interact with the outside world. The importance of being in Christian community never precludes us from interacting with unbelievers. Now I know some of you may even want to start a commune and you can get some really cheap organic produce and free range chicken out of that. That's great, but we're not going to do it. Um, That's not what we believe God's called us to. But we need to have meaningful relationships with those we work with, those we live with, those we play with, our friends who don't know Christ so that they can see our lives, especially in the hard times. That's when we want to guard because we're afraid we're going to shame Christ because not everything's going great. But that's when they really need to see you and how you're responding to the really, really tough stuff in your life and stir up wonder about the hope that you have in Christ. Which brings us to our second point. In order for people to really take notice and really raise questions about your life, more than likely, you're going to have to go through some sort of adversity. People don't normally ask, you know, where does your hope come from when everything's going well, right? They roll their eyes. I roll my eyes, you know, and say, oh, of course my life would be great if I had, you know, a ton of money. I was really healthy. My kids were all well behaved. Of course, right? That's the response. You see, it's in the moments when the obvious, the the surface reasons for being hopeful have disappeared, but your hope hasn't. That people want to know what's going on in you. Where'd that come from? I mean, it could be something as big as keeping hope in the midst of persecution. It could be as big as wrestling through cancer and holding on to Christ. But it could be as small as having a good attitude in the midst of a cynical work environment where people are asking, how do you do it? Either way, questions about hope, they come in those situations where anger, frustration, despair, and even gossip are more the natural response rather than hope. So what if you saw your suffering? When it comes, it's 
Guaranteed pretty much to every one of us, we're going to go through a series of pain and suffering at some point if you're not in it right now. But what if you saw your suffering in a different way as an opportunity to portray the tenacious hope in Jesus Christ, no matter what comes, rather than asking the question, why me, God? I mean, there are many times we don't understand why suffering or pain comes into our life. I'm not going to try to explain that. There are times where it's truly mysterious. But what if, as we see in our passage, in 1 Peter 3.17 that was read for you, the suffering you undergo for doing something good is actually God's will? How do you respond, even in those small moments of frustration? The fridge is broken. The car has just died. Happened to me this weekend. The neighbor's music is too loud. Happens every weekend. Um... (laughs) No, but can you imagine the questions from your coworkers, from your friends, from your family, from your enemies, <laughs> even as they're on looking? Sorry about this. I don't know what's going on. My whiskers, I think, are rubbing it. But could you imagine, or the questions from your kids, parents? We know that with kids, every moment is a learning opportunity, right? Every moment. <clears throat> How are you stewarding your pain? to show your children the strength of the gospel in your life. When they see that tenacious hope in your very own struggles, the right kind of different, it creates intrigue and raises questions. Do you stand out as different? Well, not only that, we see that the right kind of different doesn't just raise questions, but it answers openly. Return with me uh, to 1 Peter 3, At the end of verse 14, where Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is that moment where some of you just start sweating bullets. I've had plenty of conversations. It's like, oh great, the guy who's paid to be good and paid to speak wants us to talk, you know? Like, what is he going to tell us to say, you know? Well, hopefully I'll say what Scripture calls us to say, uh, first off. Uh, but this is, this is the moment where Scripture calls us to say two things. First, it gives a, we're, we're called to give a reason for our hope, a reason for our hope. And secondly, a defense for that very reason. And let's take each one of these individually, okay? So what's the reason for our hope at all? Well, Peter, he gives us a great clue. If you turn... Just a page over, or if you're using the community Bible, it's just, just different uh, square footage in the same page. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The hope for every Christian in here this morning, every Christian across the globe is always centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope It impacts so drastically our attitude and our disposition, right? If your hope is connected or if, if, if your hope is failing, what happens? We become depressed. If our hope is near, we become very excited. But for Christians, our hope, it's not, it's not in job fulfillment. 
It's not in marital bliss. It's not even in financial security. But it's solely in the person of Jesus Christ, who died as a sacrifice for sin, who was raised so that sins might be forgiven and death might be defeated. It's because of his invincible life. We can look to the future with any sort of hope, any sort of confidence, any sort of strength in God's will. For even God himself is guarding our inheritance. What a beautiful picture. It's because of this unshakable person in Jesus, we can have an unsinkable hope in this life right now, no matter what circumstances come. And if you're a Christian this morning, even as we're talking through that, there may be a deep-seated warmth that you feel. Something like rest, something like peace, hope, joy. But if you're not a Christian, you, one, may have felt confused. You may have felt put off or just frustrated at what was said. This is why we as Christians, we can't just give a reason for our hope that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again, but we have to give a defense of that reason. This is that second part. The defense is the why you believe Jesus rose from the dead and why it matters to your life. When I was telling you the reasons as a Christian that we're hopeful, what I didn't do was define any terms for you. I didn't explain about who God is, why we need mercy, or even why Jesus died and rose again. These are important pieces that we need to define if we're going to answer openly rather than just answer cryptically. This is the beauty of the gospel that we're called to proclaim. Christians, we need to give the reason for why we believe and act the way we do in such a way that it's intelligible to those who don't believe, to those who don't share our vocabulary, which... Which is why we as Christians, we, we need to be very careful with Christianese. And I know I need to lead the front in this way in the sermon, right? We have these Christian buzzwords that kind of tell us whether we're in the group or not, you know. Some of these buzzwords are justification, right? Sanctification, predestination. We get excited about these words. These are great words. They're beautiful words. They're not bad words. They're just big words. And they require definition and interpretation for our friends who have yet to believe in Jesus. It's important if we're going to have thoughtful conversations. But not only do we need to be careful about Christianese when we're talking with our unbelieving neighbors and friends, but it also means we need to present Christianity with the truth and the impact that it is. That means with excitement and joy so that, so that when our unbelieving friends see it and talk with us about it, they don't go, wow, Christianity sounds like a drag. Um, Rather than saying, Christianity is life and life abundant. They walk away and they say, man, I wish that was true, even if I can't agree with you yet. I want that to be true in my life. One of the best ways to communicate this and to grow in answering openly well is to tell the story of Jesus and how it was good news for your own life. I mean, this is the classic term. I grew up using this. It's time for testimony time, right? You know, testimony, how, how, why Jesus' story is good news for your story personally. Personal transformation, how it's changed your life. Why we go to a building on Sunday mornings rather than sleeping in so we can worship together. Why so many of us read this book throughout the week when many of us aren't even readers. We'll say this, I haven't read a book in years, you know. So what stories are we telling with our lives? 
What stories are we telling? What story are you telling? For example, when someone says to you at work or when you're with your friends, I have to say, I just really enjoy being with you. I don't know what it is, but how do you just keep going? How do you respond? Do you say, I guess I just have the gift of optimism. You know, you got to look at the bright side of things, right? Ugh, that's so boring. (laughs) You know, that's what people are expecting you to say, quite frankly. And, And as a Christian, it doesn't tell the whole story, and it's kind of arrogant. If it's true, because you're not the hero of your story. Jesus is. How are we allowing him to be center stage in our responses? How are we telling the story of the gospel in everyday conversations? What if instead we were fluent with responses to the same question, saying something like, I I know no matter what comes my way, you know, this work, my work, your work, ultimately I don't find my satisfaction there. I rest in someone who's greater than all of us. And no matter what comes and when work gets difficult, I just trust him with my life. And it makes some of these rougher times easier to handle. What if that was some of our responses that build intrigue into somebody else? You know, putting somebody else as the hero of the story. Figure out how you would say it. You don't have to say it how I would say it. You don't have to be a pastor to have answers and questions and dialogue that put Christ at the center. But the right kind of different, it does answer openly about the hope we have in Christ in everyday conversations. If Christ is the center of our life, he'll be the center of our conversations. It's not that we always have to be sneaky in how we're sneaking Jesus in. That's not the point. But how are we being thoughtful and intentional in that regard? So I was thinking about this, and I know we all have work to do this, do on this, and I know I'm one of those as well. So I thought, how do, we, how do I work on answering openly well? Well, three things. One, write it out. If you've never written out your own story of salvation. Man, this is a great discipline to do. Some of us need to be reminded why Jesus in our life is a good thing. We've just kind of gone about life and we're kind of bitter. We're maybe a little angry and we're looking at our life and we think it's kind of worthless. And we've kind of forgotten what Jesus has saved us from and what he saved us to, this new life and life abundant. So writing out our story can be very beneficial for us, but also while you're writing it out, Also take any terms that are super Christian easy that you can't even define that you're just used to using and start defining them, explaining what they mean so you can be thoughtful in your dialogue. So if somebody who's not coming from the same background says, what does that word mean? You've thought about it. You're able to talk through it, to be answering openly. And if you've never done this, I'd encourage you to make this your homework this next week or even over the holiday. It's just a really good discipline to get used to. But not only write it out, I'd encourage you to read it in. Read it in. As Christians, we need to be in the Bible daily. That's why we're engaging in open here. Next year, we're going to be reading through the book of Hebrews and all the various Old Testament passages that interlink with this beautiful book. But whenever you're reading the Bible, ask the question, how does this passage illuminate my hope in Christ? How does this passage illuminate my hope in Christ? So not just write it out, read it in. But even there, one of the most important things that we can do to get better at answering openly is to just do it. Talk it through. You're never going to know all the right answers. 
So don't put that, that's too high of a bar for anyone. I, I know I don't know all the right answers. And there are going to be times you're going to fumble over words. There are going to be times you look a little silly, and that's okay. Um, that's what relationships are for, friendships in the workspace, unbelieving or not. Different people are going to come with different questions. And sometimes you can just invite them to say, hey, I don't know the answer to that, but why don't we explore that together? I'd love to research and wrestle through this question with you. You don't have to be alone, and I'm not going to act like I've got my act together on this whole answer. You see, the only way we're ever going to get better at doing this is actually just building up the courage to do it, to talk it through with others that are around us, being intentional. So, so take some time over as you think about the rest of this year, 2013, to write it out, read it in, and talk it through with those around you. Is your story the right kind of different? Well, then answer openly. Well, Peter, he's not done with us yet. I mean, he knows how we can get. Um, We can live the kind of lives that are raising questions. We can answer openly with correct truth and content. But it can all come to a screeching halt in how we say it, right? And how we say it. You see, the right kind of different not only raises questions and answers openly, but it loves clearly. A couple of years ago, Crest Toothpaste, they ran a series of these ridiculous commercials that remind us of this truth. And so I just want us to watch quickly one together. Let's watch up on the screen. What's this? It's a prenup. Are you joking? Mm-mm. This is my lawyer. We have a lawyer? No, he's my lawyer. Is it because I'm so much better looking than you? No, it's because my family is so much richer than yours. We just don't trust you, Karen. (laughs) All right, so that's obviously ridiculous, right? You can say anything with a smile. So how do we say it, right? Well, let's look again at our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 13, and actually halfway through verse 14 again. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In situations where your reputation is on the line, or if you're at an institution where Christians are seen as ignorant or judgmental, and you quite frankly don't want to be associated with that camp because you feel like it'll hurt your career trajectory, Peter says God's word calls us to not be afraid or even troubled over your scenario. But remember Jesus. Now what does he mean when he says, in your hearts, in the deep recesses of who you are, revere or regard Christ the Lord as holy? One commentator, I think, puts it well. He says, the alternative to fear is to focus attention on someone else. To reverence Christ as Lord means really to believe that Christ, not one's human's opponents, is truly in control of events. So when we're in those moments, remember, you're not in control. Remember, your work environment isn't in control. Your boss isn't in control. Your coworkers aren't in control. Jesus 
is ultimately in control. I mean, think about it. What happens when you're afraid of someone or a situation? Two things normally happen. One, if you're really afraid, you just don't say anything and we become quiet, right? We close down out of fear from speaking. The other thing we can do when we're afraid is that we overcompensate with overconfidence and we respond harshly to a response. And it it can come across very intense and try to cover up our insecurity. Both of those are the wrong kind of different that Peter is trying to guard against. What does he say in verse 16? Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The right kind of love, or the right kind of answer is actually love clearly. And what we find here is we need to pause and ask ourselves the question, do we know how we sound? Do we know how we sound? Our tone that we come across with, how we're saying what we're saying. Giving a defense doesn't mean we need to come across as defensive, right? Jesus tells us time and time again to love our neighbors as ourself. And then he goes so far as to say, love your enemy. So how on earth do we show love clearly in our conversations with those we deeply disagree with? Well, what we find here from Peter is first we're to approach other human beings, no matter how much we may disagree with them, with the same humble respect that we approach God because they're made in the image of God. No matter how far they may be from him at that very moment, they still carry within them the indelible imprint of God. They are human beings. So how do we show respect in a thoughtful and honest way? One way we show respect is by taking people's arguments and questions seriously enough to listen and also to research and to do some digging into their argument. We don't just dismiss it as silly or ignorant, but we actually listen and we respond in thoughtful ways. So I ask you this morning, are you engaging in thoughtful writers who are engaging in contemporary arguments? Are you taking some time to train yourself? It's not necessarily taking a class on evangelism as the first step. Actually, a good place to start is reading the book The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Or if you've never read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Both of these books tackle thoughtful arguments from our contemporary culture. C.S. Lewis is still relevant today and making a compelling argument in our dialogues with one another, with those who deeply disagree. If you've never read either of those, pick one or both to add to your 2014 reading list. They're really, really great and helpful. And when you couple, hear this, when you couple humble respect with thoughtful reasons and dialogue, your hope, it shines brilliantly. You display the right kind of different, the right kind of different that loves clearly, such that you're seeking to go the extra mile for those that disagree with you so you can engage in thoughtful conversation. Do we know how we sound? Is it humble? Or is it arrogant? Is it respectful or is it just dismissive? Is it winsome? Is it winsome? Now, for some of us this morning, uh, the right kind of different sounds kind of more like a crazy kind of impossible. 
Um, you're not sure you're up to the challenge of living a life that raises questions. You're not sure you're, you're building up the courage enough to answer openly. And quite frankly, you're not sure if your temperament enables you to love clearly. Well, all of this is impossible unless we pause and remember the final point this morning. The right kind of different lives focused. Lives focused. Focused not on a what, but a who. Ultimately, as Christians, we don't offer an airtight argument. We offer an airtight person. Look at the end of our passage, beginning in verse 17. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In the midst of suffering and pain, whether currently or on the horizon, Peter won't let us forget that God has come and he's entered our pain. We just sang this morning, Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is God with us. I mean, you don't get more different than being born of a virgin. Anyone else know that happened? Anybody else see that? I mean, that's strange, right? And then his first pack and play was a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, surrounded by animals and strangers. I mean, that's different. And yet, God in his beauty, the right kind of different, came and entered our life and is God with us. But he's not just God with us, we find in our passage. He's God for us, right? He has come and he suffered for doing good by taking all our sins for doing evil upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be reunited with God. And even there we can't stop. Because as we sit in suffering, as we sit in pain, and as it's on the horizon, we see a God who also has gone ahead of us. A God who's with us, for us, and also ahead of us. Our hope's not only with a God who's with us and who's died for us, but who has risen again and gone ahead to prepare a place for us to bring back together heaven and earth in a beautiful, glorious design that has been God's intent from the very beginning. Who suffered on the cross one day so that one day all suffering would come to an end. And this is why Peter, he won't finish his letter without telling us this. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, And after you've suffered a little while, a little while, our lifetime is but a drop in the ocean of eternity. It's a little while. Peter wants to give us an eternal perspective. Sometimes we get myopic. This year was tough. Think of eternity, the eternal perspective. But a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He entered our pain with us, took it upon himself for us, and promises that after a little while, pain will be and suffering will be and persecution will be no more. If he did all this, Paul says, how will he not give us all things in Romans 8? So when suffering and pain come, which they will, even for doing good, even for doing what God has called us to do, don't ask, why me, God? But instead, Allow the tenacious hope that we have in Jesus Christ to shine so that we can raise questions from the onlooking world. Maybe that's why God has allowed pain and suffering into your life. So that, so that others might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
We'll be tempted to remain quiet rather than answer openly, to stand out with a courageous hope rather than fear. We'll be tempted to respond harshly rather than love clearly. And we will fail. We will fail if we don't live focused on Jesus Christ, our unusual Messiah. Beautiful, glorious, but unusual. It took us a while to figure out what was going on. The same sort of Messiah who makes the right kind of different possible. And it's this right kind of different we celebrate in the Lord's Supper most weeks here at Christ Community. We take a time to participate in a meal that not only looks back to the cross, but also looks forward to Christ's return. It's here we remember through common bread broken, the body of Christ broken on our behalf, suffering for doing good for those who do evil. It's also through common juice poured out that we remember his blood shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins for those who call upon the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord. When we partake together in this meal, we announce to ourselves and those around us that we are one with Christ in his life, one with Christ in his death, and one with Christ in his resurrection. We preach this very good news to our senses. Now here at Christ Community, you don't have to be a member to partake in the Lord's Supper, but we do ask that you be a member of the Universal Church, that you have followed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to come either this morning. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, you can take this time for prayer and reflection. If you so desire, that's the best thing for you at this point this morning. But if you do come, you can come down the center aisle, loop around to either of the two communion stations in the back and partake in groups of four to six. Both stations are gluten-free with gluten-free bread. But I just want to reiterate, there's no rush this morning. There's nothing more important than what you're doing right now. Nothing. When we think eternally in God's scope and what he's doing in your heart and mind right now, there's nothing more important than taking some time to reflect and to live our lives focused on Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take a moment to pray for us, a moment of quiet reflection, and then I'll read the words of institution. Our Father, we come to you this morning only because you came to us first. And we come in the season of Advent with joy and unsinkable hope in your work in the world and in ourselves and the promises of a restored world to come. And Father, as we come to the table, we remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you give us the zeal to live lives that raise questions. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may you guide us in answering openly. By the strength of your word and your community and your work in our lives, empower us to love clearly. And whatever it takes, may we continue to live focused. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's take a moment of quiet reflection, praying and confession of any moments in your life right now that you need to confess before God before you come to the table.
For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.